that initial message. It might be of help to you as we continue to think about the difference Jesus can make. Last Sunday, though, I asked a question. I come back to, you, to it. Is it possible that there's somebody here this morning that needs Jesus to rescue them? Now, what I mean by that really is, is there somebody here today that needs Jesus to restore life to them? I mean, sometimes in the flow of a typical week, it seems like life can be drained from us, and yet Jesus desires to be so present, so active in our daily experiences that he imparts life, he restores life, he brings into our experience the very thing that our hearts long for. And so today, I want us to think about what that means in a practical way. But before we get into the lesson, I, I guess I have a, a question. How many of you just would like to, to have a reason to smile for just a quick moment? Always good to smile from time to time, to be uh, reminded of things that maybe sometimes the smile is out of surprise. And that was the case this past week. I was reading an article and it was describing the actions of a mayor down in southern Mexico. And the mayor had been invited to a rather important community event. And as he was invited to attend, I guess he developed a plan that he thought would be sufficient. And his plan caused me to smile. Now, let me show you what he decided to do. There's a picture. I don't know that you can fully appreciate the first picture. Let me show you the second one. Uh, what he decided to do, instead of attending the event, was actually to send a life-size, uh, you know, uh, cutout of himself, and his constituents were irate about this. Instead of showing up, he kind of just mailed it in. He thought, I'll just send this cutout of myself, and that will be sufficient. I wonder who in his office gave him that advice, if anybody, wasn't the best advice, because all of the people took their picture with it, not because they were excited, but so that they could vent on Facebook, criticizing him for sending this representation of himself with act without actually being there. Now, in fairness, let me show one more picture of him. He has attended some events. He just chose not to attend that event. Well, when I read the story, I smiled and I almost laughed when the aide in the office went on to say they've not yet decided if they'll continue to use the cutout in the future. Uh, I suspect they will never use it again. But here's the question. As you think about his actions, have you ever done anything similar? Now, by that, I'm not insinuating that you have a life-size cutout of yourself that you send but is it possible that we attend meetings, gatherings, and though we're there, we're not really there? I mean, even in the midst of a worship service. You're here today, but are you really here? I mean, have you committed yourself to engage in what God desires to do in your life? Or are you just kind of checking that religious box you've attended and you're just waiting for the service to end so that you can move on to whatever follows. My prayer for us this morning is that we'll be all here. That it's not that we're just present, but not really, but spiritually our longing is for God to speak in a way that our hearts might understand. Maybe let me voice a prayer toward that very end. Father, I pray for ears to hear, for a heart that's tender. I pray as we think about who Jesus is and the impact he can make in our lives that will we'll respond in 
do so sincerely. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, I introduced a passage that I will point to every single week of the series. Now, we'll be looking at a variety of passages over the length of the series, but this is the primary passage because it's a passage where Jesus himself is trying to say to us that he can rescue us, that he can restore life to us. It's found in the fourth gospel that is in the New Testament, the Gospel of John. One of Jesus' earliest followers wrote down, reflected upon what Jesus said. And I want you to consider this testimony and think about the implications of this testimony concerning your own life. I'm reading from John 10, beginning with the seventh verse. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he, or I could add she, will be saved. Now that's the key phrase. Jesus is saying, now if you respond to me for who I am, I will rescue you. I will save you. That means more than simply deal with the guilt of of judgment for sin. It has to do with Jesus restoring life. And I say that because of what Jesus goes on to add. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out like like a flock of sheep and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life. That's what Jesus desires for you. And that they may have it abundantly. Jesus adds, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, I taught this passage last week. I'm not going to re-preach it. Point you to the webpage if you want to think more about all that these words describe. But let's step back from the passage and remind ourselves of two of the basic lessons that are found within these verses. The first is this. We are dependent creatures. Jesus compares us to a flock of sheep, to an individual sheep. Last week, I showed the picture of an attractive sheep. I chose a different image of a sheep for this week. I think we need to be reminded that we're broken creatures that were dirty creatures, in need of rescue by the one who claims to be the shepherd, the good shepherd. And what's exciting is if if we will recognize our dependence, our need for him, then Jesus says he will save us. He will lead us in and out of pasture. He will restore life to us so that we can come to understand a fullness in life that's not dictated by the circumstances that rise and fall, but it ultimately flows out of the spiritual dynamic that's available to those who relate to him for who he is. So out of this passage, Jesus is saying, you need to see yourself as dependent creatures And you need to recognize, ultimately, I'm the one you need. For Jesus is who we need personally. Jesus is who we need collectively. He is the door. He is the good shepherd. Now, looking out at most of you, you're 
regular attenders. Thank you for your faithfulness. And so as I've talked about this, probably most of you would say, I agree with that. I am dependent and I need Jesus. And you would, you would acknowledge that. But here's the deal. It's one thing for me to acknowledge that. It's something else for me to live as if that's true. Over the last seven days, what did you do specifically as a result of your need for Jesus Christ? What did you do? At the close of last week's message, I recommended some simple things we might do that would line our hearts up with the teaching of this passage. One thing I suggested is that we start every day with a, a prayer on our lips, a confession, where we would say sincerely, Lord Jesus, life is in you. Lead the way. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands how many of you did that. I guess I would rather ask the question, if you didn't, why did you not? Do you not need him? Do you not understand your own inadequacies? I mean, Jesus says he's the key, the life, the door. Why would we not acknowledge that personally? Say so you, you acknowledge that and indeed you express that as a prayer. Well, then how do we follow his lead? Jesus says we find life as he leads us in and out of pasture. Okay, how does that work in 2019? I think as a believer in Jesus, that's possible as I open the testimony of his words through the Bible. I can actually read what he says. I can come to understand what he teaches. And I just recommended last week, why not begin to read through the Gospel of Matthew? Another one of the Gospels that point us to Jesus, that talk about Jesus, that reveal the teachings of Jesus. I suggest you just read a chapter a day. That's a rather simple plan. But again, did you do that? So I know I need Jesus, and yes, I want him to lead me, but I didn't take any time to hear what he had to say. Well, how do you then follow him if you're not giving him a voice into your life? Now, we're not going to hear Jesus speak audibly, but what's beautiful is we read from his word, focusing on this faith relationship with who he is, he will speak to us through the testimony of what we read. I tried to provide some practical questions that might further facilitate that. One of the questions that you read as you read through a gospel is, well, now, who is Jesus? And how should I respond to him? If you read with us through Matthew, the first seven chapters, starting the seventh was today, there were a number of instances where what was revealed taught us something about Jesus' identity. Well, when I would see the uniqueness of who he is, how did I respond to him? And as you read through the opening chapters, there were many instances where Jesus taught his disciples about how they should live. Well, one of the questions we ask is, okay, what is he leading me to do? Every day I should be asking, Lord, what are you asking me to do? How would you have me to follow you? And more specifically, how would you have me relate to the people around me? Because from Jesus' perspective, that's a huge deal. If I want to find life in abundance, then I follow his lead, particularly as it relates to the people that are around me. 
On Friday, uh, in our readings, we entered into what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has this to say about interpersonal relationship. He says, you've heard that it's said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, he explains, you may be sons of your father. He's not saying that that is the basis of you becoming a son. He's emphasizing that that is the reflection that you are when you love in the ways that, that, God's lo- that God loves. So if I want to find life, which I do, and I realize life is in Jesus, then what I want to do is relate to him and follow his lead and I allow his word to speak into my life. Not just on Sunday. I'm glad you're here. Well, what about tomorrow morning? Are you going to acknowledge him then? Are you going to read with the heart's desire to follow his lead? I hope, even if you didn't read this past week, today you'll decide, I'm going to do this. I'm going to begin to relate to Jesus as a shepherd so that I can experience the life that he offers. Now, the reason I want us to read through Matthew is I want us to learn through the experience of one of Jesus' earliest disciples, the disciple Simon. If you read this week on Thursday, we were introduced to Simon. And as we continue to read through Matthew, we're going to observe how Jesus interacts with Simon specifically and what we can then learn about what it means to trust in Jesus and to follow Jesus based on his ups and downs. And so it will kind of come alongside the John passage where we're going to see it played out in the life of an individual. That said, let's go and consider uh, how Jesus called Peter or Simon to be one of his early followers. It was found in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Let me just read it for you and just think about what's happening as, as Matthew describes it. Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. See, the shepherd is calling them out. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets. They left their vocation and followed him. Verse 21, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Verse 22, immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. When I read this passage, I'm struck by the actions of these four men, and I want to focus on Simon in specific. Why in the world would they leave their vocations behind and follow Jesus Christ? Now, in Matthew's account, we, it simply says Jesus sees them, Jesus calls them, they follow him. It's very concise, right? Right? Why did they follow him? 
I think we can gain further insight if we go to yet another gospel, the gospel of Luke. Now, we've already read from John and we have been reading in Matthew. Luke was actually written by a Gentile writer. He was a, uh, a colleague of, of the apostle Paul. He took upon the task of becoming a historian for the church. Uh, the book of Acts is the story of, of how God worked through that first generation of believers. But Luke also became a historian surrounding Jesus Christ. He wrote the third gospel. And what Luke did, and he explains it in the opening verses of chapter one, he went to the eyewitnesses and gathered the information. And then he put it together in an orderly way. It's funny, some who have yet to trust in Jesus sometimes criticize the Bible. They suggest that when they read through the Gospels, they see a bunch of contradictions. What I would have you to appreciate when you read through the Gospels and you see stories described in different ways, what you have presented to you is just the testimony of eyewitnesses. I mean, if all of us had gathered to observe a singular event, more than likely, if we had been interviewed, we would highlight different things about what we saw. That's what you find in the different Gospels. And so in Matthew's gospel of, of Jesus calling Simon out, it's kind of brief and to the point. In Luke's gospel, I wonder if he went and talked with Andrew, or maybe he talked with Simon himself, to say, now, I, I know you left your nets, but why did you leave your nets? Listen to what Luke says and how he explains it in a way that maybe would help us. On one occasion, verse 1 of Luke 5, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing, Jesus was, by the lake of Gennesaret. That's just another way of referring to the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus saw, notice, two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Remember in Matthew's account, uh, James and John were, were tending to their nets with their father. Jesus sees the fishermen after having spent the day fishing, kind of tending to the nets that remained. Verse three, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. See, the crowd had gathered because of Jesus' growing popularity, and Jesus wanted to teach them, and so he decided he would, he would kind of uh, acquire a floating platform. He asked Simon, can I use your boat? They just pushed it off slightly from the shore so that Jesus could more effectively address the crowd. And as the text indicates, he sat down, Jesus sat, and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now let's pause at this point and think about what's happening. Simon and his brother Andrew were skilled fishermen. That was their livelihood. And if you were a fisherman in, in Jesus' day along the Sea of Galilee, the time to fish is in, in the darkness of, of the early morning, in the darkness of night, uh, when the fish would come close to the surface. And apparently Simon, Andrew, James, and John had spent the night, the early morning fishing, and they were now cleaning up the nets as a result of it. Jesus, though, having spent some time teaching, turns to Simon and says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go back out with me into the deep of the water, and I want you to let down your nets. Here's the question. 
If you were Simon, if you were Peter, would you have let down your nets? Would you have troubled yourself to go further out into the lake with the effort to try to, to fish further? Now, they had not been successful in their first attempt. If you were Simon, would you have done that? Now, again, I'm not a fisherman by vocation, so maybe I don't identify as easily with what is happening with Simon, but let's change the scenario ever so slightly. How many teachers do we have in the room today? Okay. have a number of teachers in our congregation. Let me say, thank you for doing what you do. Whether you teach in the classroom, and I know we have some mothers that homeschool their children, or you teach in the home, thank you for doing what you do. But stay with me. Imagine this. You've spent the day trying to teach your classroom of children. Now, my daughter, Rachel, who sings with the band, is a kindergarten teacher. Uh, Kindergartners are never distracted. (laughs) They're always attentive. Well, imagine trying to teach your classroom, and all day long you've been unsuccessful. You've employed every teaching technique. You've tried to follow uh, the, the wisdom of the teaching plan that had worked maybe on other occasions, but for whatever reason on that day, you had failed miserably. And then suddenly somebody that comes by, yeah, an acquaintance of yours, comes by and, and you know this person isn't by training a teacher, and yet this person says, here, here's a teaching plan I want you to try. I'm gonna ask, how many of you would give the person a second thought? I mean, you're the teacher, right? You know what to do. And though you were unsuccessful, I mean, who is this person now to suggest to you that you do something different. Well, this is what Simon is feeling. He, he hears what Jesus says, and Luke records his reaction. Verse 4, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your net for a catch. And Simon, verse 5, answered, Master, We toiled all night and took nothing. There's his honest confession, even maybe a little bit of a skepticism. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, personally, I think Simon has been interacting with Jesus for some period of time. His younger brother Andrew had met Jesus because Andrew had been one of the early followers of John the Baptizer. And so he'd come to know Jesus and he goes to Simon and says, I think I've met the guy that you need to to, to meet. And, And so more than likely, they've been interacting over some period of time. And so this isn't a complete stranger that's now asking Jesus, asking Simon to set out into deeper waters. No, this is someone that has made a favorable impression on Simon. And here he's making the request, and I'm impressed by how Simon reacts. He says to Jesus, notice, Master, that's a term of respect. Master, though we've not been successful, at your word, I will do it. And they do. They go through the effort of putting the boat back into the deeper Waters. Let's follow the story as it develops even further. Um, verse 6, And when they had done this, 
they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. I would suspect Simon didn't anticipate that at all. But as soon as they obeyed what Jesus had asked them to do, they experienced the unexpected. I mean, they had so much fish, the, the nets themselves could not hold them. Here's a visual picture of that. They could not bring it in. Some could even argue they experienced a miracle. Now, think through what led up to that. Jesus asked them to do what? To go out and drop their nets. They heard what he said, and they acted on it. What I want you to appreciate is we want to find life in the fullness of what Jesus would offer. There's a direct correlation between what he says and what we do. If you want to experience the unexpected, then you need to follow his lead. Wouldn't you agree with that? Simon, Andrew, James, John, they are astounded. Verse 7, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. I think it could be fairly said nothing like this had ever been witnessed on the Sea of Galilee. That's the power of Jesus Christ. How did Simon respond? Verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, saw what Jesus had accomplished, he fell down at Jesus' knees. Notice the posture. He's at Jesus' knees and he says to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. As I reflected on this, it appears to me, and maybe you would agree, that where initially Simon had respect for Jesus, respect has now changed to reverence. As he responded to what Jesus said and experienced the result of what Jesus caused, suddenly Simon's eyes are open to an understanding of Jesus that he didn't possess before. He falls down humbly. He now recognizes there's something about Jesus that sets him apart from anyone that he's ever met. We'll finish the account, verse 9. For he and all who were with him were astonished. That's probably too weak of a word. Astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, here it is. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Can I paraphrase that? Stop being afraid, and I will change your life for the better. You think you found fulfillment in catching fish. I'm going to introduce realities into your life that you never imagined possible. Verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they, referring to Simon, Andrew, James, and John left everything and followed him. So what motivated Simon to leave his nets and to become a follower of Jesus Christ? Based on this story, why did he do it? 
He did it because, first of all, his perception of Jesus changed. He went from respect to reverence. He realized there is something in Jesus that I need. And I think it could also be argued his perception of himself changed. As he came to more fully recognize the uniqueness of Jesus, he was humbled, dare I add, humiliated. He felt so unworthy, and yet Jesus, in his great compassion and love, like the good shepherd, says, that's all right. Yes, you are a sinner, but you know what? You come and follow me, and I'll make you to be the person that you, you had the potential to be. I'll make you a fisher of men. Follow me. And he did. See, Simon went through the door and began to follow the shepherd in and out. Now, as we continue to read into Matthew, continue to focus on Simon. Observe his interaction with Jesus because we're going to realize as you begin to follow Jesus, there's going to be high points, there's going to be low points. The key, however, is to learn from his example so that we relate to Jesus as the good shepherd. And so, let me bring two questions to you to consider for today. Given what we see with Simon, here's the question. Who do you perceive Jesus to be? How you answer that question will determine whether you actively follow him or not. Who do you perceive him to be? Do you have respect for him? Or is it deeper than that? Is it reverence? As you realize the uniqueness of who Jesus is. Remember what Jesus says? I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, Jesus says, rescued. And he will go in and out and find pasture. Do you see Jesus in those terms? I would argue if you do, you're more likely to follow him, right? But if you view him in something lesser than that, the evidence is in your actions. So who do you perceive him to be? And let's look on the other side of that. As Simon was confronted by it, who do you perceive yourself to be? And Simon, to his credit, was very honest. I am not worthy of... Of this, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. Is there anybody in the room that feels that they are? I don't. I know my weaknesses, my failures, my sin. You know yours. Does that then maybe potentially cause you to think, oh, I don't know that I deserve. Well, just as Jesus would speak to Simon, he would speak to you. I want you to follow me. I will make you to become... That will be the difference in your life. I need to admit my need for him. If I see him for who he is and acknowledge my need for him every single day of my life, I will then follow him, right? Or at least seek to with some success and failure. But do you see the correlation? Simon, Andrew, James, John left their nets because they had a clear understanding, recognition, of who Jesus was uniquely and an admission of who they were. And Jesus began to change their lives. Do you want that? Let me give us a 
practical way we can personalize this. I'm going to ask the band to come up. In just a moment, we're going to observe what's referred to as the Lord's Supper. It's a physical observance Jesus introduced to his disciples to remind them of the sacrifice that he made on their behalf. And in a moment, we'll hold in our hands symbols of his body and his blood to move us to respond to Jesus in a fresh way. But this is what I want us to do. As we approach this observance, I don't want us simply to think about the sacrifice Jesus made at the cross. Yes, he died for our sin and rose again so that he could impart life. I want you, as you hold these symbols in your hand, to think about how you're relating to him, who you perceive him to be, who you perceive yourself to be. I want us to think about that. And then as we participate in the observance, I want it to move us to respond to him in an appropriate way. Now, the passage, oh, I lost my Bible. Here we go. When Jesus introduced this observance, this is how he introduced it in Matthew's account of it. Just listen to it so you can appreciate the heart of Jesus. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He's giving them the symbol of his sacrifice. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, referring to his disciples, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is introducing these symbols to point us to an appropriate response to him, a fresh response to him. And so as the trays are passed in a moment, you'll see that the cups are stacked and one has the wafer, one has the juice. But as you hold these symbols in your hand, think to yourself, who do I perceive Jesus to be? Who do I perceive myself to be? How should I respond to him? Now, I don't want us to be hasty in that. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. If this past week has been less than following Jesus, then maybe you need to privately admit that, to acknowledge it sincerely. Seek forgiveness in a fresh way. But with heads bowed, would you be so bold as to ask Jesus to help you see him more clearly, to see yourself appropriately, to respond to him. Would you ask him to do that? Deacon Philip Scott's gonna come and offer a prayer. Following the prayer, we'll begin to move into this time of remembrance, reflection.
symbols of Jesus' sacrifice. The wafer, a reminder of his body, the juice, a reminder of his cup, of his blood. The question is, how are we responding to Jesus? I mean, as you look at the wafer, who do you perceive Jesus to be? I'm not asking you to give an answer that you think I want to hear or anyone else wants to hear. I'm asking you honestly, who do you see him to be? See, Simon left his nets because he had a change of perception. Who is Jesus to you? Is he the door? Is he the one who leads you in and out of life? In remembrance of him. The juice is a symbol of his blood. And Jesus, in his own words, says it's the blood of the covenant for the forgiveness of sins for many. Well, maybe then the appropriate question as we hold the cup is, who do you perceive yourself to be? Would you admit your need for him? Whether it's the need of forgiveness or the recognition that you need him for life. Do you believe that so deeply that you would follow his lead? In remembrance of him.